0: Episode 199 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. This show was recorded on Monday, 3rd of September, 2018.
1: The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to JensenUSA.com/slash the Spokesman. Hey, everybody. It's David from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at www.thefredcast.com. I'm one of the hosts and producers of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. For show notes, links, and all sorts of other information, please visit our website at wwwthe And now, here are the spokesmen.
0: Hi there, I'm Carlton Reed of Vipers.com and today's show is a book review done by the author. And that author is John Parkin, Professor of Transport Engineering at the University of the West of England, and that's in Bristol. We talked via Skype earlier today and spent over an hour and a half examining his 228-page book. The subhead for which is International Principles and Practice. Designing for Cycle Traffic uses plenty of good practice from, well, where you'd expect really, the Netherlands, and is packed with information for cycle advocates, traffic engineers, I hope really, really that traffic engineers really use it, uh, scholars and students. I asked John if he thought his book was utopian? Yep, he replied, but by increments, utopia can be reached, even in America or the UK. We also discussed vehicular, uh, I hate this term, vehicular cycling, and why it's important to recognise that cycle traffic isn't necessarily slow traffic. So on the line uh, right now, Uh, on a a university line, a special polyphone, uh, I, I believe. I've got John Parkin. And John, I am presuming you are at your university institution at this moment.
2: I am, yeah, sat at the desk with so, my book in front of me and notes and so on and so forth.
0: So tell me exactly where you are there. I know you're in Bristol, but tell everybody else where you are.
2: Well, I, I'll look out of the window because it's a glorious view. Well, apart from the fact that it's actually quite hazy today and I can look across and see the uh, escarpment of the, um, oh, what do you call it, The um, the Cotswolds. And it's a lovely view and you can see the motorway and so on and so forth.
0: <laughs> so you are at the University of the West of England and That's you are the Professor of Transport Engineering. Correct. And I'm reading that uh, from the back of your book, even though I knew, I knew that anyway. But it's, So your new book uh, is called Designing for Cycle Traffic. And it's, it's not
2: a cheap book, John. It's not a cheap book. This has been pointed out to me. It is on offer at the moment with about 20% off, I think. Um, And that is an interesting point. And I have been thinking about this quite a lot because, of course, a lot of people blog. And a lot of people get what they want to get out into the world in an extremely cheap way. However, I suppose what you're paying for is... Uh, And and why I went down the publishing route is that I have had every single chapter thoroughly peer reviewed. And I think that's really important. And it really did change. And I just want to thank, publicly acknowledge the reviewers. They contributed immensely to it. And I certainly had to make a number of changes to the chapters based on their comments. That's the first thing. And the second thing is um, it's that. It's that badge of authority that comes with the Institution of Civil Engineers Publishing and the fact that then within at least my domain, which is teaching, it is a book that the libraries can adopt and it comes with that added weight. So I think that's what you're paying for. I don't know whether I've sold that to any of the listeners uh, any more than a blog.
0: It's an incredibly... Dense, and that that is a, a very much um, a, a compliment. A, 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 de- a very dense, information-rich book, and I'll just flick through to the back of it. So it's two hundred twenty-eight pages, including the index. Uh, tons of further references in there. Uh, at the back, you're, you're absolute gobbledygook to me. You've got a whole bunch of equations um, yeah. about I'll designing t- for, for yeah. cycle traffic, and and the Y value is this, and the S values isn't. It's like so. This is something for. Well, who, who is it for? Who is this book yeah. aimed at, John?
2: This book is aimed at three sorts of people. Practitioners, so professional traffic engineers, highway engineers. Secondly, students. Thirdly, the advocacy community. And I think I, I had a reviewer. You know, when you're discussing publicity with the publisher, you come up with all sorts of interesting comments about the book that you want to get across. But... One of the reviewers of the book came up with the best strap line for the book. And she said it's a book for all those who think their responsibility is designing solely for motor traffic. So I, that, that says it all to me. So just coming back onto the gobbledygook, um, that is there principally for students Those in the practitioner world might need to be uh, reminded of some of these. But this is the sort of thing that I teach about capacity of equations, capacity of signal junctions, so on and so forth. Far too often, arguably, somebody who is an advocate of cycling and making changes to the network to uh, allow more cycle traffic on the highway network might um, meet stiff resistance from, for example, signal engineers. So if you can't talk their language, if you don't have the ability to do the sorts of equations and have the sort of background knowledge about capacity that they have. You're simply not in a position to create um, an argument that that will be a winning argument for, as far as they're concerned. So that's why that is in the back, principally for students, but also then to allow anybody to to w- win appropriate arguments.
0: Yeah, yeah absolutely fine. And I, I must excuse my lack of knowledge. So that's why I said gobbledygook. That, um, that, that. Not not Sorry. not to degenerate uh, to, to denigrate any of the information in there. Of course, it's just that I I. I'm not a traffic engineer. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm probably fit into one of the categories you said there, which was the, 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 the cyber yeah. advocacy side. Yeah. So let's just, I, I would like to go through almost page for page in the book, but let's just start with the back cover. So okay. you've got three um, uh, bits of blurb here. So the, the people who are on the back here, I think are pretty indicative of, of who this book is for because the, the, the people who are involved. So one, you've got Chris Boardman. So yeah. we all now know Chris Boardman. Uh, yeah. Yes, he's the the gold medal, uh, Barcelona 1992. But now, to cycle advocates, he's the the kind of the, the chief guru because he's actually got he's got his hands on a city, yeah, or a greater conurbation. So so the he's is the walking and cycling commissioner of Manchester. So he's said some fantastic bo- um, stuff about your your book. Then you have uh, Paul Sheppers, who's the senior well, road safety is- advisor scapers scapers i do apologize scapers uh but he and the, the reason i got that wrong is because he's dutch so he's from the dutch ministry of infrastructure and waterworks and of course that's the reek water start so that's like in effect the uh the ministry of transport yeah. uh but lots of other ministry of infrastructure basically but it, it's the it's the the water state um infrastructure department basically yeah. uh so he's he's um and he's a guest researcher at Utrecht University as well so he's put a blurb on there there are three blurbs and then you have uh, i'm sure many people will be familiar with uh, John Puka Pucha am i pronouncing this correctly Puka I think Puka. Is... Puka yeah. okay John Puka so uh, so he's at, at Rutgers University and he's he's been on the spokesman uh, uh, before and he's written some uh, uh, amazingly um, fantastic uh, mm. uh, cycle advocacy uh, uh, books Uh, articles he's one of the the go-to guys for for getting more uh stuff put in in your your town so they're the three people on the back who are plugging this for you so that that tells you the kind of level you've got so it's it's for advocates it's for engineers and it's well it's probably for me like journalists and uh and it's 65 pounds and i'm not saying that as something that's a terrible thing because it is so information rich, it's of course absolutely worth 65 pounds. And as you said, it can be in libraries, so lots of people can get it. Is it going to be available, um, Kindle online anyway, or is it always going to yeah. be a print
2: book? Yes, it is available now as an ebook, um, and I. Th- I- so whatever format that comes in I think it's effectively PDFs of individual chapters but to buy the whole thing it's the same price it's it's the sixty five pounds
0: right okay so let's let's go for the title first of all because I, I know inside the book you do stress that it's cycle traffic and it's really important to to, to get those words in so it's yeah. designing for cycle traffic why why did you have that title why do you think cycle traffic as a phrase is so important it, it was about
2: 20 years ago when i suddenly realized that people were talking about um, traffic and cyclists mm-hmm. and i thought hang on a minute uh, cyclists are traffic and since that time i have insisted on always talking about cycle traffic i think it's becoming more and more common i get i get the feeling that people understand it I get the feeling that, uh, you know, there's a recognition of the meaning behind that. And as I say, I sort of go dip into a bit of philosophy there. The way we think is utterly informed by the way we speak and the language we use. So if we're using the wrong language, then we're fundamentally adopting the wrong thinking. So just as for instance, in... Uh, Germany and Denmark and the Netherlands, they have used, um, you know, the the correct expression, the equivalent, I'm just trying to look it up. Here we go. Fietz in Dutch. is Fikir and
0: cycle traffic in Danish. That's that's,
2: that's very... So here's the thing. They've been using the right language Hmm. and also they've been doing the right things. I think there's a fundamentally important connection there.
0: And the language is also important, of course, and this is very um, important for a lot of bicycle advocates in the way that the media talks about the agency of cars in that we, we have driverless cars on the roads at the moment. If you, if you looked at the, what the media uh, talks about. So it's a car smashes into a pedestrian. It's not a, a motorist smashing into a pedestrian, whereas you, the point you make in the book is you're still searching for a headline, bicycle kills pedestrian. So the agency is removed when it's a motorist, but it is not when it's a cyclist. So, so is that a, an, an intrinsic um, uh, fault in society that somehow we've got to correct?
2: Yeah, I think that's right, and I think we correct it again through an insistence on on the appropriate language. So it's how we think is informed by the language we use, and I think we... I'm I'm no philosopher, really, but um, I think that the longer we perpetuate inappropriate language, the longer we perpetuate inappropriate thinking. So let's begin to get the language right, and if um, the advocacy community... If ourselves as academics teaching students use use the correct language, if the um, professionals begin to use the correct language, we will begin to think about this this whole thing of um, cyclists within the um, the public realm and cyclists on the carriageway and cyclists within the you know transport network in a completely different way. And I think that is so fundamentally important. So um, arguably, I I would say that page two, that section 1.2.2 about language and its connotations is fundamentally important um, to to the whole book, the whole kind of thinking of the book and the whole way in which it began to go wrong for um, cycling and design for cycle traffic, you know, years ago
0: yeah I, I agree and i've i've devoted large chunks of my books to to getting those definitions down mm-hmm. uh, including yeah. cuz you you've mentioned one of the, the 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 people i've mentioned in my book before who's very much a forgotten person in advocacy i've tried to resurrect him and that's eric claxton yeah. who his terminology uh was for cycleway so when we're yeah. talking about uh this is where it comes confusing: a, a bike path, a cycle path, a cycle track. A, how? Wh- why do you describe these things in this way? And, and language is important. Well, he just said, "Look, we've got a motorway. We should have a cycle way." Now, you say in your book that you probably prefer that term. But you can't always use it apart from chapter seven, I think you say, because it's yeah. not it's not the official language. So <clears throat> just, just just tell us a, a, a bit about, yeah, about that, why yeah. that's important.
2: A call out to you first, Colton. Thank you for your book because that's where you, I think I probably knew years ago, but you were re-alerted me to Eric Claxton's use of Cycleway. um, In just tell us the title of your book, your latest one. I can't quite remember.
0: The latest one is Bike Boom. I Bike probably, Boom. I probably also mentioned it. In fact, I did mention it in Rosemary Built
2: for Cars too. So, so I, yeah. I do.
0: I do regard him as a, a seminal figure. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think you're right. And then I had quite a struggle, actually. When I first wrote the book, I decided that <clears throat> Cycleways and Eric was an interesting historical sort of anachronism, and he nearly got it right. But then I kind of thought, and this was me being too conventional again, arguably. I said, oh, well, we can't use that. We've got to use the word track." Then I came to write the uh, – I, I couldn't get the title correct for Chapter 7, I was doing kind of linguistic gymnastics to try and work out what the appropriate title was, sort of off-road, off-road cycle, you know, and all that sort of it. And I thought, oh, no, the correct title is Cycleway, obviously. Mm-hmm. So that's what then became the um, title chapter. And then I've got a bit, bit, bit of blurb at the beginning of chapter seven all about that. So he- here's the thing. Why do we, and again, it comes back to the language path actually, if you go into it's etymology, is a word entirely linked with the foot. It's about the padding down of dirt. I think that's exactly right. And if we use that in association with cycling, we immediately have that link between pedestrians and cyclists. Then you you sort of got, got this sort of commonality. We end up with all these other terms like greenway and shared use and all the rest of it. I will say no names, no pack drill. I have had some very interesting discussions fairly recently with some very senior people who um, have argued for still the use of shared use paths, uh, greenways and so on and so forth on the basis that that's all we're going to be able to get. And I, I really believe that we are beyond that now in the UK. I think we have these extremely good examples from northern Europe where we can um, move beyond shared use paths where the um, actual design parameters are, according to the principles which we'll get onto, I'm sure, are not adequate for cycle traffic because you are having to cycle at a slower speed. And I know, for example, and this could be unpopular, and I I need to be careful how I say it, but the chief exec of Sustrans and uh, the the director of Cycling UK joined together to plead with people to slow down on the Bristol-Bath path. And they were saying, your behaviour needs to be moderated for the benefit of all. And my argument is, actually, the Bristol Bath Path, if those pleadings are having to be made, is not now fit for purpose for cycle traffic, because it's not providing the level of service that many people on that route um, would, would would like to adopt. So, mixing pedestrians and cyclists is innately a problem. I'm sort of going on to a slightly different, you know, issue here, but but. These are reasons for therefore not using greenway, shared use, shared pass and so on and so forth. What is appropriate is, as Claxton said, the uh, equivalence between a way for carriages, motor traffic, a way for cyclists, a way for the foot, footway, carriageway, cycleway. So that's why I adopt it. And I think we should, um, I think we should, again, Seriously, think about using cycleway much more frequently. Where that cycleway is not a legal right-of-way, it can be just called a cycleway. Where it also happens to be a legal right-of-way, then it will also be, in legal definition terms, it will be called a cycle track as well. So it'll be one and the same thing.
1: Hmm.
0: Now, is there any chance that officially these terms could ever be changed, or are we stuck with them? Do you think?
2: I suspect in the near Term, we are stuck with them I don't think that um, now let me think when when did the term sort of cycle track first appear it was sort of the 1930s mm. it um, I think the value would be in initially bringing them into common use and then I think it might be a natural and obvious thing later on to to make some legal change but I, I can't see a a legal change happening Um, In the foreseeable future. and I'm not not necessarily sure that's absolutely necessary. I think it's the it's the common use of the term that's more important So
0: we should be using the word cycleway just in 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 natural language much more than
2: we do. I would argue that. Yeah,
0: and I I would too now um, Cycleway is a good term London Cycle Super Highway is a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> so, do you think they made a bit of a a, a a mistake there in naming something when they could have just called it the London Cycleway? Why do they have to go and and make it into something super and <clears throat> and, and 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 make it so much longer? So then it has to be abbreviated to CSH.
2: Yeah, yeah, good point. To be honest, I'd avoided. Um... I, I, well I, to be honest I'm not sure I'd I particularly thought about that point other than when I was writing the uh, bibliography uh, the um sort of what do you call it the list of abbreviations and definitions at the beginning that became an enormous task you know you, you begin to realize um, how many different terms are used but i I think in a secondary sense I was avoiding being too critical of um, of uh, London on the basis that it Uh, has been doing good things it's been learning a lot and doing things better and better um, as as time has gone on generally speaking
0: so perhaps in the fullness of time they could just drop the cycle superhighway bit and just call it a cycleway I
2: I, I would think I I would think so yeah ironically the Danes have now adopted superhighway as a as a, a, a phrase as well.
0: Is that for their fast ones? So there's a differentiation, like in ne- the Netherlands, there are some fast routes, like almost yeah. like motorway-style routes, compared to...
2: Yeah, they are. That's that's exactly right. That's in Denmark. And in the mm. Netherlands, they use the word Schnellfeets, which is mm. fast route. As, as, fast as, as route, as yeah. As yeah. As, yeah. Interestingly, though, of course, there is a backlash, even in the Netherlands, against some of those routes that are being called Schnellfeets on the basis that... People somehow have a general fear of cyclists going quickly, whereas the inverse is true with motor traffic, and people seem to object when we um, need, for very good safety reasons, to constrain the speed of motor traffic. I think there's an irony there. So even in, in the Netherlands, there are, there are objections to Schnellfeets, and I do wonder whether that Schnellfeets is, is the correct terminology um, mm.
0: So picking up on that point, the mass media will will complain when a pedestrian is knocked over by a cyclist who was screaming along at 18 miles an hour. And it's like, yeah, but that's two miles an hour than 20, which is something that you decry in your same pages saying that, you know, you can't. How can you possibly go at 20 miles an hour in a car? It's too slow. So there's the double standard at work there, isn't there?
2: Yeah, absolutely. You put you put the finger on the nail, or whatever the expression. Yeah. is. hit the nail on the head. Yeah.
0: So let's go back to. I mean, I'm not going to pick out every single phrase in your your book. We'll be here for about 25 <laughs> hours. But cycle track. So cycle track. It is a very much a, a bugbear of mine, because as you pointed out, it's it was first used in the 1930s. Uh, it was the definition that the Ministry of Transport used for these new uh, Dutch style cycleways i i always use cycleways when i'm talking about them but then when i have to talk in their language i've got to like retranslate back and start talking about cycle tracks mm. and one of the reasons it, it it it's my bugbear is because when i have to search through um literature of the time when i have to search through newspapers and i put in the keywords uh, cycle track of course i get 90% velodromes and grass cycle racing tracks mm. and it has that obvious uh, connotation of not being for transport. This is a a recreational leisure thing. So Mm. if you only could have searched for cycle, cycleway was used in the 1920s and 1930s. It was a, it's a phrase you can search for and you can go for people finding to to use it way before Claxton. Uh, But it just never caught on. and, And unfortunately cycle track caught on. And it is amazing that and I don't actually think I really mentioned this at all, but the fact that it's it was created in the nineteen thirties as this definition, and we still have it today this yeah. definition, and it is a an it absolutely an imperfect definition it, when we have got this much much better
2: word it is no you you're absolutely right, and i' just just thinking off the top of my head it would need uh scholars of history to confirm this but i do wonder whether the uh, the term cycle track was adopted because there was this perception at, b- because it was linked with the interurban network and you know trunk roads and and so on and so forth the the kind of link back to you know the high wheelers and and the people doing it for sport and all of that sort of thing so it was this very strong sense that cycling was something to do with leisure and Sport and not to do with transport um... no
0: I, I would say it's actually the opposite so the you look through the ministry of transport uh, minutes of the time the the, the the mandarins ranked the ministers and stuff it was absolutely for traffic it was it was the separation of traffic so they wanted to clearly corral cyclists away from their their betters in effect so mm-hmm. the, the the elites in their cars, and they wanted to, to ostensibly save cyclists' lives by separating them out. But you, you don't have to read between the lines too much, and you certainly find it from from, from many many newspaper reports at the time. Is no, this is so we can drive faster. That's why they want cyclists uh, to be to be put to one side and separated. So let's let's go through. I mean, it, it will be tough to go through every single uh, uh, chapter and give a a description. But if we can just some, I mean, how many chapters we've got? Let's have a look. We've got 15 chapters. So if we just, if, if you give me a brief overview, so this is like, this this is yourself giving yourself a book review, basically. Um, And You're you're, you're describing each chapter as we go along. So introduction, where we can't, we've covered a lot of that. So a lot of that's to do with the language uh, and just what this is. And one of the, the points you make at the beginning is we should be designing for people. Uh, uh, Basically, so let's start on chapter two. So, planning for cycle traffic, what's that all about?
2: And I think, again, this is a critically important issue. Um, Go back 10 15 years, um, I just don't think that there was any level of transport planning undertaken for cycle traffic. Um, The only sort of consideration given to Cyclists was um, within the pre-existing road network. There were often issues with safety, and therefore the whole issue of dealing with traffic became an issue of dealing with, uh, you know, collision black spots or or whatever. However, in transport planning more generally, we do an awful lot of planning. So, in other words, we work out where origins are, where destinations are, what the demand will be like. Um, what the shape of the network ought to be uh, for public transport, what the pricing will be and so on and so forth. And we model that. We model the demand and so on and so forth. And it is critically important, therefore, for the mode of cycling that a whole panoply of appropriate planning is undertaken, Now, this book is principally about designing for cycle traffic, but it's certainly incumbent on me not to, and it's quite a large chapter, chapter two, it's certainly incumbent on me to describe to the readership the appropriate ways of um, planning for cycle traffic. So it starts with policy, it then moves through to um, sort of understanding the legal basis, it moves on to estimating demand, and there are some really good developments in um, the methodologies for estimating demand, for example, Robin Lovelace's work at Leeds on propensity to cycle tool, and a, a an add-on to that, a cycle infrastructure planning tool, which is now available, and then the whole issue of cost, the analysis of costs and benefits, and so on and so forth, and finally then the monitoring and the evaluation. Um, of, of schemes, so those those are exactly the titles for the different types of planning that go on for uh, most um, other forms of, of, of transport, and therefore they ought to take place for cycle traffic, and they are increasingly, and that is really uh, very welcome and very very good to know.
0: Now, now many cycle advocates are absolutely very good at the, the engineering uh, part of the uh, 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 of 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 what what's in your book but i would say that uh the estimating future cycling demand and then the cost benefit appraisal they're they're two incredibly key uh items for an advocate so you've got to talk about how much this is going to cost because these are things that people want to to know and then how much is it going to be used so they're these are two totally totally core things which we've got to nail down
2: yeah yeah Yeah, and I provide in there um, the current web tag, which is the government um, web-based transport appraisal guidance for modelling cycle demand. Um, And you can go on the web and you can find the appropriate uh, source document for that. But what I do in a box then is, again, put numbers to that and show people how the equation works and how you could estimate that demand. And then, of course, beyond that now, and I think to some extent the web tag will or a future iteration of web tag will include uh, Robin Lovelace's Propensity to Cycle tool. Um, and, of course, anybody can go online and, and use that. And I very briefly explain uh, some of what the Propensity to Cycle tool is doing there.
0: Now, one of the, the, the things about the cost-benefit analysis is that the government seems to ignore it on a... On a pretty uh, yeah. every, every single time basis, so yeah. you, you can you can talk about the cost benefit analysis or the the benefits oh. of a cycle scheme compared to a road scheme. Oh. Yet, yeah, when it comes to but what was actually built? Oh, it was the road scheme. So why why does the government ignore its own figures?
2: Well, that's a very good question. I think we uh, it, it's the kind of fairly well known um, idea that those. And I would include my profession as well. Those within the professions and those uh, within policymakers and politicians want big ticket items because then they can retire and say, I, I built that, you know, iconic bridge or, or whatever it is as an element of that. And I think equally um, that there's, you know, the opposite is the case. Recycling, it will often be relatively smaller scale adaptations of the built environment which create the appropriate environment for cycle traffic so you haven't got the same sort of level of um, you know desire by the politicians in terms of the actual numbers the health benefits from cycling are enormous and as a consequence of that sometimes they simply or haven't been anyway Believed, as it were, mm. so so you come out with these rather high benefit to cost ratios, and then the policymakers say, well, they can't be true, and then ignore them, and then you know still want, want to build the road scheme, as it were. Mm. However, here's the point. Now, I do make it in the book. I think if I could find the right sentence, for me there was a i had a startling revelation, when I thought, well, hang on a minute, why is the burden? Of the, benefit of the health benefit of cycling, as it were, placed on cycling. In other words, why is it that um, that has to be calculated as a benefit? In other words, the norm is driving in a motor car and being sedentary. What would the whole investment scenario look like if, conversely, we place the burden of health on motor traffic and its um, detrimental effect on health was had to be estimated in in relation to the motor traffic itself and the cycle traffic was assumed to be a norm and i think you would get enormously larger disbenefits then from promoting motor traffic schemes and you wouldn't even have to consider benefits for cycling then it would just be the you know the transport efficiency benefits that you'd be gaining mm. Mm.
0: Okay, let's go chapter by chapter again. So, chapter three, Principles of Design for Cycle Traffic. What's that all about, John?
2: Okay, I think this is uh, arguably, again, a key. I think chapters two and chapter three are sort of absolutely key chapters. Um, I, again, have been a bit um, radical, I think, in the sense that historically many have talked about different types of cyclists. you know, fast commuters, uh, parent with child, and so on and so forth. I think that is wrong. I'll explain why I think that's wrong in a moment. But I do think it's important to reckon different types of cycle which haven't been recognized before. And there are many tandems, quadricycles, hand cycles, cycles with child seats, cargo cycles, and so on and so forth. So, in other words, we need to understand the nature, shape, and geometry of, of those vehicles because it is the built environment that we will be, will be creating a geometry for the built environment to accommodate those heterogeneous different types of cycle. So, However, for the cyclists themselves, there certainly are. I mean, we are, you know, as humans, extremely different. We're sometimes disabled, sometimes older, sometimes younger, but... The key issue for designing for any type of highway uh, or or traffic engineering uh, sort of function is the design speed. It's the speed at which you cycle, and that determines the horizontal geometry, the vertical geometry, the stopping site distances, and so on and so forth. That is embedded in Dutch design. It always has been. They adopt 30 kilometres per hour as the urban design speed and 40 kilometres per hour for uh, the inter-urban design speed. And I tabulate in in the book a range of different design speeds. But fundamentally, the basic design speed for cycle traffic is 30 kilometres per hour. That to many seems quite high. But um, the mean speed from studies I've done of commute cyclists in Leeds, which is not exactly the flattest city in, in the UK, suggests that the mean speed is 20 kilometers per hour. So then with a standard deviation of whatever it was, a, a six, 6, I think it was, uh, kilometers per hour, you'll get a good number of cyclists, particularly going downhill, who are traveling at significantly more than 20 kilometers per hour. Therefore, you need to design your infrastructure to suit that that, um, range of speed. And I think just as a sort of passing comment then, that 20 kilometers per hour is uh, significantly higher, is five times higher than the mean speed of walking. Mm. So that fundamentally is the point why we should, and I I will express it extremely categorically, never ever design for cycle traffic, shared with pedestrian traffic it just does not work because it doesn't offer the appropriate level of service for either pedestrians or for cyclists
0: oil and water um uh, electric bikes where do they fit into that speed
2: because yeah.
0: and, and speed pedelecs even so the ones that can go even faster mm. than than the normal
2: e-bikes mm-hmm. I think the speed pedelecs. I think when you get above a certain speed, I think the jury's out on this. Then there would certainly be a case for registration and um, not allowing them, uh, you know, on certain cycleways and so on and so forth. However, I think with standard e-bikes where the um, power cuts out at um, uh, 50 miles an hour, your maximum speed will typically not be that much higher than for non-e-bikes. The principal advantage of e-bikes is that you can travel further and tire less on that longer journey. And also going uphill, you can travel at more nearly your normal mean speed rather than cycling more slowly. So overall, I I think the issues of e-bikes and their speed are rather over-egged However, I do think the jury is still out on that issue to some extent. There's certainly evidence from the Netherlands, for example, that, that older people on e-bikes are having more, more collisions. But um, I think that is uh, an awful lot to do with the um, locomotive function of the older people and the fact that they are um, you know, not able to control the bike as well as they might, might be able to. And I think there's some special special issues there that certainly do need some consideration but in terms of e-bike speed relative to design speed for normal size i don't think there's that much difference but but we still need to keep an eye on that i think we will learn more as time goes on about that
0: okay and i can see from your index and i do like books with indexes uh, that there are five mentions of e-bikes in, right. uh, in the book. So you, you've clearly covered it in a number of different chapters. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's chapter four, which I like this one, reducing motor traffic dominance.
2: Okay. Just before we go into that, can I just make a, a, a real um, point that I, I hope I have, and I will certainly t- um, a- accept any comment or criticism that I haven't done this well enough, um, really pushed on the whole issue of cycling for all. In other words, people who are uh, who are disabled and broadly speaking the about a quarter of the population has some sort of disability whether that's um, mental physical um whether it's just about uh, or just about it's is an important issue whether people tire quickly or, or whatever it may be and if we are designing only for um a proportion of the population which is not disabled, then we're being extremely discriminatory. So throughout the book, you, you, the, the, the word I have used, and I, I don't know whether, you know, you've kind of identified, is it cycle. Because a cycle is mm-hmm. something which is peddled along, and then a bicycle is, a, is a, 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 a particular type of cycle. So in every case, we're thinking about cycles and all people and I yes. think that's a critically important um, point to make.
0: In a lot of the photographs in the book, you've actually got a, a recumbent rider. Is that somebody you were going out with, or the photographer was going out with, or, or was that just an accidental
2: recumbent yeah, rider? I, I, I have always been deliberate in trying to include as many different types of cycle as I can in my um, serendipitous photography, as it were. However, I did go out specifically with um, kevin hickman and alex ingram from wheels for Wellbeing, to ensure that my balance of photographs was not inappropriate
0: <laughs> I, I can now see that's kevin i do know kevin do you know why i didn't recognize him he wasn't on a brompton
2: uh okay i yeah. always
0: see him on his brompton so there you oh. go he's on his recumbent there okay yep i see that's kevin now Uh, Yeah, okay. Cycling for all. Very, very good point. And there are lots of photographs in the book uh, and not just in, say, a a, a specific chapter on on disability where people are cycling for all. Okay, so chapter four, reducing motor traffic dominance.
2: Yeah. And I've had comment already that it's really important that that this chapter is is there. Um, Hang on. Sorry. Can I just drag you back to chapter three again? I just Hmm. want to make a really important point, I think. And that is about the nature of networks in urban areas. Fundamentally, what's happened is that we had a pre-existing sort of highway network in 1950, 58, let's say. And then throughout the 1960s, we very dramatically changed the nature of our cities and urban areas by re-engineering that network, adding new roads, bypasses, inner urban uh, distributors and so on and so forth. And managing that traffic on an area-wide basis using signing and signals and so on and so forth to suit and this is a key point to suit motor traffic which very often was in fact to the detriment of cycle traffic so whereas you know historically you might have been able to cycle straight into town on a you know on a certain arterial route for very good reason there's been a pedestrianized area and then an inner urban ring road and the motor traffic has to go around that inner urban Um, distributor road or whatever cycle traffic has had to do that as well but it's all been designed for motor traffic and i think there's a key issue about retrofitting um, to create filter permeability within our urban areas to enhance the uh, attractiveness and prospects for cycle traffic in penetrating to to the center of urban areas we've got to go back and re-engineer all of our area-wide traffic management and that is beginning to happen you'll see gyrators being taken out in london and so on and so forth
0: so so it's and leicester's a good case in point they had uh they had you know multi-deck highways came down and that kind of stuff so it is happening
2: which was my hometown and i remember the belgrave road flyer Mm. being built in 1973 and um so it was very interesting to see it taken down a couple of years ago yeah
0: so that's the curry mile in leicester isn't it so
2: indeed yeah it leads on to the curry mile much
0: more attractive now Uh, okay so let's get on to that chapter Chapter four four. which we're we're, we're trying constantly to get on (laughs) to so get on to it
2: yeah okay and um i yeah i i i I think the point is and and many in the advocacy community at least are, are, are recognizing this i'm not entirely sure how well recognised it is within the professional community yet though, though it certainly is a growing uh, recognition that um, our town and city centres are for people and fundamentally and I got a quote near the beginning of cities are for people I say and the mm-hmm. fabric of communities should be designed principally for people and certainly there are many cities now that are creating. Um, areas within uh, both residential and and the city centre which are for people and those people include people cycling. Therefore, a critical issue is um, reducing, as the chapter title suggests, the dominance of motor traffic and it's about all of those different methodologies for doing that including area-wide traffic calming, including creating specific infrastructure like cycle streets for cycle traffic, including shared space, pedestrian priority, um, informal streets and traffic calming and so on and so forth.
0: And is one of the ways to reduce uh, traffic dominance also getting this book, your book, into the hands of current engineers in, so in, that they can just... There's now there's no something quite concrete in a, in a, in a figurative sense, to use, that's very academic, clearly looks weighty. The fact that it's 65 pounds is probably a benefit in in this respect, in Indeed. that it's something incredibly serious. This is, cycle traffic is serious. This is something that is it's not a flippant thing, which is probably something that was... You certainly see in the literature uh, in the 60s, 70s, 80s. This is a flippant thing. This is not a real transport. This is just a side issue. This book yep. is bringing it into something much more...
2: Serious. I, I, I think that's right. Thank you for saying that. I think that's exactly right. I, am, I was approached to write the book and I had previously always suggested that I would only write a book on traffic engineering generally, including almost, um, you know, buses and, and um, motor traffic and, and motorcycles and everything. However, I think you're right. And I think it is, an ext- I would argue, it's an extremely timely book because two reasons. There have been significant developments taking place in thinking over recent years, particularly in London. And now we will see more of that in Manchester. And just to call out here to those very um, innovative engineers that are working in the field do I need to re-record that with the dog bark in the background or <laughs> no
0: I think people who listen to this podcast often get that dog barking in the background now <laughs> it's something I can't really help it's it's our guide dog puppy so sometimes she will bark and I'm sure people will just accept that
2: I hope uh, that's free I'm sure they will so um where was I yeah significantly and call out to people like Phil Jones Brian Deegan Adrian Lord these are the people who are, have been pushing the boundaries and creating those significant developments so i've just named three there but there are many more apologies to those who i haven't named
0: but brian and is that, somebody who you who's read the whole book i mean you he, say in the beginning that the brian is the the, the guy who really helped do he ha- the whole book
2: indeed he he has um so thank you to brian for doing that again yeah um great brilliant um And then I think, secondly, there's been a lot of development design guidance uh, over recent years as well. So I think it's timely because it it really is important then to consolidate that, to evaluate that, you know, a kind of line in the sand, as it were, um, to kind of say, well, this is where we are now at. This is a serious subject. These are the developments that have taken place. This is the guidance as it currently stands. But then, importantly... And um, you may or may not be my my, um, potential readers may be shocked to realise, but my copy of the book now has many marginal notes about issues that I would uh, reconsider for the second edition. (laughs) But so there's a line in the sand, but certainly, uh, you know, things will develop from there.
0: Mm -hmm. So then we get on to some shorter chapters because you're talking about very specific things. So let's just go. Let's go through these. So cycle traffic within The carriageway, what's that about?
2: Okay, so traditionally, um, traffic engineers, if they've had an issue with cycle traffic, have painted a bit of a white line and suggested that the problem is solved. We now know, I think this is still sort of, again, open to further development and, and so on and so forth, but broadly speaking, if motor traffic is at 20 miles an hour and the volume of traffic is about 2,000 vehicles per day, then it's a very benign environment for um, cycle traffic. Higher speeds than that or higher volumes than that and you begin to need to separate cycle traffic from motor traffic. So this book, Within the Carriageway, it's talking about cycle, uh, well, no provision at all, cycle lanes and then light segregation. So that's cycle lanes with... Vertical, um, a vertical some sort of vertical intermittent barriers between the uh, the lane which is for motor traffic and the lane which is for cycle traffic. A critical issue in all of this is a recognition that the bicycle is not wafer thin, that it has what we in engineering terms call a, kinet- a kinematic envelope in other words, when in motion, um, the width of the cycle because of side to side motion and so on and so forth is wider than the absolute you know width of the handlebar Um, so that determines the width that you need so very much the chapters about the widths that you need to provide within the carriageway and whether or not you need to segregate um, to some extent by light segregation within the carriageway
0: on on that note uh, two things uh, one, I got Chris Boardman to talk about that envelope on the overtaking video uh, that I did some years ago, which was has yeah. been very, very popular on uh, YouTube. So it's very good to, if you want to hear about envelope and, uh, and and the passing distance, then and Chris does that very, very well. And yeah. secondly, I, the, the way you're talking about the light segregation and in effect the painted white white line which is the bugbear of many cyclists. I've I've now since uh, historically found where that's come from. So it was a a Ministry of Transport uh, traffic uh, professor, in fact, and probably somebody very, very similar to to yourself, in fact, in academic background, who advocated for this in um, about 1940, 1941. So he created a, a treatise for the Ministry of Transport. It was then picked up. Uh, by the cyclists, touring club, and other p- uh, parts of official uh, uh, cycling as the preferred method. So instead of cycle tracks uh, which were you know coming at this time, which were segregated with with uh, demarcated nine foot wide uh, curbs, it was their preferred yeah. option, which which was what they were pushing to get, was no, just make the road wider. And have in effect a painted white line. So we can we can we can we can now date that. I I've now found the professor who came out with this um, in that's, the early nineteen
2: forties. I'd be interested in that. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Is that on available on your website at, at all?
0: Uh, I haven't. I've just I've got the research. I haven't published it anywhere yet. I mean, this is the the nineteen thirty cycle tracks research. It's uh, that's yeah. where it's coming in. But it is. It's an interesting little uh snippets which, which it, it will get out there i will publish that at uh at some point of just where cycling has come from and, and how certainly how the, C, the ctc uh, uh is back then cyclist touring club and you know cycling uh whatever, whatever what are they called now
2: uh the cycling today
0: cycling um, whatever
2: cy- cycling uk
0: <laughs> yeah i'm being quite flippant there because it is I... it is quite hard to actually <laughs> pin them down uh, with with a, a quite a, a, a vacuous name that they they do unfortunately have now uh, which i 'm sure they 'll hate me for but uh
2: oh, there you go oh, i think i i want to take a contrary view to that mm. i i i think cycling u k is is a rather useful um summarizing uh catch all phrase that that really to me t- t- tells me what they are about cyclist touring club is a much more specific title which doesn't really tell you what they're all about so i, 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 I go with cycling uk i, I, think- I know
0: i know the arguments and i'm i'm i <clears> guess <throat> i'm very much biased because of a uh, uh, of the long history uh of the cyclist touring club i know that the touring part of I, it I, is, is popular, but that's why you ctc I, you can you, use the aa and not have to use automobile association you know what aa means
2: OK, yeah, yeah, yeah. OK, yeah. You don't I...
0: need the touring bit, basically. You just say CTC without the, without yeah. the connotations, then. But anyway, oh. we're, we're, we're drifting away from what we should be talking we about. We are, we are. Um, so that was cycle traffic within the carriageway. That's Chapter 5. Uh, cycle traffic adjacent <coughs> to the carriageway is Chapter 6.
2: Yeah, OK. So I have uh, the boundary, as it were, between Chapter 5 and Chapter 6 is, as it were, the kerb line. So... Chapter 5, as we said, deals with within the carriageway, and that includes light segregation. But then as soon as you put a kerb line or some sort of um, barrier, vertical or or otherwise, between the carriageway and cycle traffic, which is still within the highway, the curtilage of the whole highway, then that is dealt with in Chapter 6. And that includes um, so-called stepped cycle tracks, which are, the uh, type of track that has been used in Copenhagen for many, many years. We first in the UK uh, began to call them hybrid tracks. That's referenced in a a local transport note or traffic advisory leaflet. But but now the phrase which is more commonly used is SEP cycle track. So you get a curb, (coughs) excuse me, you get a curb between the carriageway and the step cycle track, and then a curb between the step cycle track and the <clears throat> adjacent footway. Those um, are uh, one form of um, separation from the carriageway, and then another form is um, where you have some sort of sort of more a, a greater distance. So you might have a half a meter, and then a cycle track. <clears throat> which uh, is then, well, very often it looks as though it's still within the footway, but the critically important point is that that cycle track will be designed to all the geometric standards and comfort standards for the surface of the route and so on and so forth, which are appropriate for cycle traffic. The footway is something completely different. And historically, of course, what we've done is, as it were, thrown cycle traffic onto the footway and then done nothing for cycle traffic other than than assume that it can wend its way in and along the footway and around pedestrians to get to its destination. So what we're saying now is that the provision for cycle traffic needs to be within a cycle track which is designed specifically for cycle traffic, and that and that's the key uh, distinction.
0: Where where does I'm going to describe something here that you, you, you'll know full well is a is a red rag to a bull. Uh, but, but vehicular cycling. So if if yeah. there is any full-blooded, hundred percent, you know, all cyclists must you know must take up the, the the full width of the lane and must never go on separated um, uh, cycle infrastructure etc. Where where does vehicular cycling fit into your book, if at all?
2: Now, that's an interesting point. Um, It doesn't in the sense that, well, let's define vehicular cycling. Mm, Yes. That is from John Forrester uh, and uh, his notion that cyclists ought to be able to uh, perform within motor traffic in such a way that they are treated by other motor traffic as vehicles. And my suggestion is that the evidence is that there are many people you will not get mass cycling if you adopt that philosophy because many people simply do not want to uh perform in that sort of way in the sense that uh they would need to for example accelerate extremely quickly at roundabouts to get up to the sort of speed that um Motor traffic will be going around a circulating carriageway and so on and so forth. They either physically are not capable of doing it or simply do not want to do it. And then there is also the proximity to fast moving traffic. So it's a philosophy that may be fine for some people, but will not engender mass cycling. Now, I think some could begin to confuse what. I'm talking about with vehicular cycling because a mantra and, and, and uh, my, my, my comment is that this should be etched on the desk of every designer involved in designing for cycle traffic. My point is that the bicycle is a vehicle and it's a vehicle capable of speed and a heck of a lot of highway and traffic engineering follows from that. It means that we have to, as I said before, get the right radii and and so on and so forth. But that is different than saying that that bicycle as a vehicle has also to mix with motor traffic, because I I think it can in some circumstances, you know, with the speeds are right, the volumes are right, and so on and so forth. And in more extreme cases, it can as well, where people are willing to um, be amongst faster moving traffic. And I count myself as one of those, you know, I'm a fairly confident cyclist, and I will um, you know, c- command my position in the lane, and so on and so forth. But I recognise that not everybody is wanting or willing to do that. But equally, the bicycle is a vehicle, and therefore all of the design off the road needs to be to the appropriate vehicular standards for a bicycle.
0: So I'm now going to I'm, I'm going to channel my. <clears throat> not 1970s, 1980s vehicular cyclists. I'm going to channel the 1930s. This is where it came from, the 1930s okay. CTC guys who... So the, basically the, the arguments for and against are just regurgitated constantly. But where they started in, in the 1930s, so the arguments against uh, segregation back then, one of the arguments, was there were many, one of them was, well, yes, fantastic, we're going to get 500 miles of uh, segregated lanes put in, however, that's just you know one percent of actually how many roads are out there, and it's going to take actually if we start the calculations, it's going to take uh, 1500 years to get <coughs> even if the money was available to get all of these these uh, cycle tracks put in next to, to roads. In other words, it's 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 you ut- have- utopia. So is your book a, a utopia? So you're talking about putting a lot of this infrastructure in, the, the separation or the, the, the correct terminology, etc. All fantastic in, in theory and with, with cycle advocates would like to talk about this. Is it ever, ever actually going to happen? Is it not just you're talking about utopia and it's going to take uh, 1500 years to put in?
2: Okay. That's a brilliant journalist question. I'll tell you why, because I'm damned if I say yes, and I'm damned if I say no. So you've nailed me there. (laughs) So I'm going to go and say, yes, it is a utopia, but is a utopia that we should certainly be aiming at. And I think that um, it's about progression. I I, I think that, you know, there is this thing about um, thinking about the ultimate. And um, if... If the guys who started building, let's say, the railway network for the UK actually had any conception about its nature and extent when they began, they might have sat down and scratched their heads and begun to think that that was impossible. And they wouldn't have then gone and done it if you said I'm driving it.
0: No, it's a very good point. So uh, Stockton to to Darlington Railway. If you start with that, well, that's that's nothing. We're never going to get any uh, railways in this country. And then you look at it just 20 years afterwards, the amazing explosion. So these things are possible. So utopia is actually achievable if that's what you want to do.
2: Exactly right. And I think it's that sort of success breeds success. So um, just as, for instance, Chris Boardman and his extensive team of technical advisors in Manchester are being now even more, I think, um, um, what's the word? Uh, adventurous let's say than has been the case in London you know they're doing it slightly different but they wouldn't be doing it in Manchester now if it hadn't already been done in London you know so there's a sort of uh, looking over the shoulder and looking at that success and then and then all of a sudden you look around and every major city in the UK will have pretty damn good cycle you know infrastructure in 15 20 years time sort of thing and then uh, you know that will spill out to other areas so yeah i i, I would say i think i am aiming at utopia and you can look to the netherlands and and it, it's you know everybody suggests that's cycling utopia having said that i mean um, if you went to the netherlands in the 1990s and then compared that now with what what they have currently It is so, so much better now than it was in the 1990s that they have developed enormously as well, uh, even in that period. So nothing static. And I think your reference point is always the current time. But if you look too far ahead, then you can begin to say, well, it's all impossible. But uh, it's all about that, you know, that, that trajectory. Incremental steps exactly
0: okay so one of our, one of our, my favorite chapter just because of the what it's called so chapter 7 yeah. cycleways which we have discussed briefly already yeah. but w- what is that chapter about
1: yeah yeah
2: okay um, this chapter um, talks uh, about some of the that legal background that that, that we've um, talked about already and then it uh, the principles for the design the geometry is um, laid out in earlier sections but then i talk about the, uh, the pavement, the highway pavement, the surfacing and construction details um, and then lighting and so on and so forth. So this is slightly more the civil engineering. I think the civil engineering for the, the, the highway is fairly straightforward. But then very often when you move off the highway completely, um, you end up with and again, this is a mantra that that is now much more widely adopted. Historically, anything off carriageway the uh, asphalt surface would often have been laid by hand. In other words, uh, it it would have been tamped down by hand without machine rollers and so on and so forth. It's generally ubiquitously recognized now that you need to lay the surface with a machine so that you get the same um, tolerances in terms of deviations from the line and level that you're after. You get the same tolerances as on the highway, and you need that because, again, the vehicle is the bicycle is a vehicle capable of speed, and therefore you feel that if you're cycling along at, at any speed. So, I think it's still a fair bit of learning need, needs to um, you know, go on there on the part of professionals involved in um, designing off road cycle routes.
0: Okay, so chapter eight, and again, this is another. I mean, there's many, many critical chapters in your book. Every single chapter, of course, is a critical <laughs> one. Uh, but chapter eight, priority junctions, is an interesting one because y- you can you can make the most fantastic uh, protected straight cycleway, mm. uh, but as they recognised in the 1930s, it all it, it falls to to pieces if you don't protect the junction. So it's the junction that's actually the important part. So chapter eight is priority junctions.
2: Yeah, it, it, and of course, priority. There are more priority junctions than any other junction type, just because you know the thousands of them, innumerable almost. And we again have been learning a lot. I think the um, Danish should be very good at this. their step cycle tracks. They carry straight across the junction mouth. Now in London, we are um, adopting many more um, uh, m- m- mouths to junctions where the Uh, the footway continues across the junction mouth and the motor traffic has to be a lot more careful about how it emerges uh, onto the main road that's fine where the side roads are very minor in nature where the side roads are more major in nature then you you begin to move up the pecking order and either put signals in or or roundabouts but mostly it will be about more more minor um, junctions. So I I think the jury's still out there. I think we have still a lot to learn, and I'm um, expressing the current state of the art, but if anything, it is in this area where I think there's most continuing development in thinking about how we uh, safely cross pedestrians and cyclists across the mouths of um, priority junctions. Now, I, sorry, sorry. Go for it, John. What? Yeah, uh, what I will just say, I, I think, critically important. I, 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 kind of. This was a realization to me as well. On the um, a, a trunk route between um, Arnhem and Nijmegen in the Netherlands, there is a priority junction on the track, and there's a photograph of that in the book, Figure eight point one point four. And my point about that is that there are, there are warning lines, there's the uh, give way line, there's signing and so on and so forth. And I'll just quote you what it says. The full usual traffic engineering specification of control, warning and guidance is provided. So even on the on the completely segregated from motor traffic, They're using the full panoply of normal traffic engineering specification to create their junctions. And I think that's an important point, that off-highway we've still got to design for traffic, it, it because it is traffic. It's behaving as traffic. So
0: that is one of those snell routes you were talking about. Because I've I've it, been on that route. Yeah,
2: yeah, uh, yeah.
0: It is fabulous. Now we are only halfway through the going through the the chapters of Oops. your book here, uh, John. So we are now going to uh, cut to an advertising break and uh, take it away, David.
1: Hey, Carlton. Thanks so much. And hi, everybody. It's David, and I am here. Well, you know why I'm here. I'm here to talk about our longtime loyal and fantastic. Sponsor, Jensen USA at JensenUSA.com slash The Spokesman. Remember, that's J-E-N-S-O-N USA.com. Now, what's Jensen USA? Well, if you don't know by now, you should. JensenUSA.com is the place where you're going to find all of the things that you need for your complete cycling lifestyle. Complete bikes, mountain bikes, road bikes, gravel grinders, everything in between, components, apparel, accessory, tools, shoes, really gifts, everything you can imagine that you would need for your cycling lifestyle. And we're not talking about off-branded stuff. We are talking about name brands that you know, love, and need for your cycling lifestyle. You're going to find those name brands at incredible low prices, and that's all going to be coupled with unparalleled customer service. If you haven't been to Jensen USA before, I urge you to do it right now and every time you need something for cycling because they're going to have it at great prices and you're going to be very, very satisfied with their customer service. Go ahead and check them out. That's at JensenUSA.com slash The Spokesman. Our thanks to Jensen USA for supporting The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast and our thanks to you for supporting our sponsor, Jensen USA. All right, Carlton, back to you.
0: Uh, Thanks, David. And I am here with uh, Professor John Parkin, and we are going through his book chapter by chapter. So we've just done, uh, before the ad break, we had priority junctions. We've now got chapter nine, signal control. So traffic lights, red and green bicycles. I'm presuming, uh, John, in this chapter.
1: Yep. Yep
2: that's exactly right now signal control is the traffic engineers um, favorite default sort of option for more major junctions they're more efficient than roundabouts and broadly speaking the speeds will be a little lower going through traffic signal control junctions than on on the rest of the road network uh, because traffic will have been brought to a halt because of the red light and so on and so forth. however there are many, many different, very specific ways that we need to ensure that we uh, cater for cycle traffic, either crossing on cycle routes or if they are on cycle tracks or step cycle tracks or even in cycle lanes approaching, different specific engineering methods for dealing with their, um, their presence. And that, that's what the chapter deals with.
0: And then, I mean, that, that's, 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 that's just stopping Uh, uh, people you know with 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 lights Uh, this next one is this is certainly something that's a favorite of cycle advocates and that's roundabouts especially dutch style protected Mm. roundabouts which you do so the the way you describe it in here uh, is roundabouts with external cycle tracks which i'm assuming is is your definition of the the dutch cycle uh,
2: yes. About. Now, you are fallen into a trap. Most, oh, UK, oh. People, most Putin UK people talk about Dutch-style roundabouts, but there is no such thing <laughs> as a Dutch-style roundabout. It's a kind of catch-all. for. They've got lots of different styles of roundabouts. Mm. Which style do you mean? So fundamentally, yeah, I think the style that people are referring to is a roundabout where uh, the, uh, the there is an external track that cycle traffic goes around around the outside of the roundabout and then uh, either, and and both exist in the Netherlands, either the cycle traffic gives way at each entry and exit arm or the motor traffic gives way to the cycle traffic. And broadly speaking, in urban areas, the cycle traffic has priority, and in rural areas, the motor traffic has priority simply because of the the relative speed. But fundamentally, I think the... um, it's one of those empire things. It's one of those things that we exported to certain countries around the world, the English-style roundabout. And I compare and contrast English roundabout geometry with so-called compact roundabout geometry. And compact geometry is typically the continental style of roundabout uh, geometry. And, and in effect, the, the difference is this, that the English-style roundabout the attempt has been made to reduce what we call geometric delay. So in other words, if there's nothing else there, we reduce to a minimum the speed reduction that a vehicle has to undertake in negotiating the roundabout. Whereas a compact roundabout, you can regard as effectively traffic calming at, at a junction. So you, you come on, you you sort of turn left onto the roundabout and then you turn left off the roundabout uh, a game once you've been around it rather than the sort of sw- more sweeping movement that you can make an in an english style roundabout which i actually call british mm. roundabout and we i had a big discussion with somebody about whether it should be called english or british but anyway there we go we ended up with british um so um I, I cannot see that we will change all of our roundabouts in the UK to compact, but there are certainly a large number in urban areas that ought to be changed, and um, I think Cambridge is leading the way on that. So, yeah. Um,
0: so, I would say Sunderland led the way on that in oh, okay. uh, 1937, in that they had a cycle track around a roundabout, uh, and it's right. still it's still there. So, in, in my in my uh, research, that was one of the ones that I videoed for my. Uh, my Kickstarter project. So I, I, I showed myself coming round the, the protected cycle track, coming round a roundabout. Um, so they, they, we have been. Okay, I, I agree with what you're saying there about you know we shouldn't call it Dutch style roundabout. But if we are going to call it a Dutch style roundabout, and I am just going to, then it, it, it's not something that we can't design in the UK or have only just started to to design the UK we did design in the UK uh, many, many years ago. So all of these things are absolutely possible because we've definitely done them before.
2: Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay,
0: chapter 11, carriageway and cycle track crossings.
2: Crossings. So, yes, so this is, this picks up any sort of crossing of the carriageway which hasn't been picked up before. Um, So, you know, signal roundabout and so on and so forth. And um, it broadly speaking he's dealing with um well signalized crossings or uh, zebra crossings um so that's a zebra crossing of a pedestrian route crossing a cycle route and there are some good examples now at bus stop bypasses up and down the uk we're Mm. beginning to be more familiar with the fact that at, at junctions where there are pedestrians and cyclists we can't just let them um organise themselves it's much better to um put it in the traffic engineering so that there's some understood um level of priority one way or the other so that's broadly speaking what chapter 11 is all about
0: and then chapter 12 I see another one of these critical chapters um cycle parking is it's it's a critical issue you you you, you absolutely are not going to go into the centre of town if you can't lock your bike up somewhere secure
2: Absolutely right, yeah. Now, I'll let you into a secret. Cycle parking uh, bores me rigid, but it has to be there. (laughs) Mm. And I suspect that's part of the problem, isn't it? I mean, it's pretty straight. Why does it bore me rigid? Well, it's pretty damn straightforward, isn't it? You provide a Sheffield stand problem solved. There's a bit more to it than that, and i go into that in, in the chapter. But, uh, and again, I think this is something that uh, I've picked up from uh, a tweet that somebody made about the book. Um, but fundamentally, replacing car parks with cycle parking mm-hmm. fundamentally increases the capacity of your high street. Um, mm-hmm. And um, yeah, that, that's it, basically. OK. Um, we, we need to provide it. We have to provide it. Let's just get on with it and do it.
0: And the Dutch provider in Spades, of course, eight, with, with, with multi layers and and
2: yeah. three
0: thousand yeah. bikes and stuff like that. Okay, uh, Chapter Thirteen: uh, Modeling and Auditing in Design.
2: Okay, so this uh, comes back to now. N- 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 note that in design, it's potentially subtle. There, there are, there are issues in this chapter which are about methodologies for assisting designers, which are different than some of the methodologies that I've already talked about in Chapter 2 in terms of uh, planning for cycling. So there's a slightly different emphasis. And the modelling I'm talking about is operational appraisal modelling using things like micro-simulation modelling, which is a very common um, method for um, producing models is sort of visualizations of things like junctions to show to policymakers about what what a future scheme might look like. There are some specific issues about how you would um, simulate cycle traffic in microsimulation. A lot of work has been done on that and I'm summarizing some of that to assist people uh, in the process of uh, appropriate micro simulation modeling of cycle traffic. And then I think beyond that, there are also, we we will operationally appraise um, uh, traffic engineering schemes. And um, many times we're wanting to understand the level of kind of efficiency and efficacy and so on and so forth of cycle traffic. And there have been legion, and I list them in the book, methodologies for auditing and reviewing and so on and so forth. But we uh, are now... Um, moving towards a system which is contained in the local cycling and walking infrastructure plan uh, methodology of sort of stripped. Sometimes these methodologies become enormously detailed, um, but then they become so detailed that nobody uses them, and so it's getting the right balance, and um, the book sort of leads towards the current state of the art in, in where that is.
0: Okay, now I'm going to go back to the front cover here. Uh, because okay. the, the subhead it's designer for cycle traffic is the title, but then the subhead is international principles and practice. So, f- so far, yeah. what we've been talking about is, is very, you know, very much the, the, the uh, 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 British cycle infrastructure. But here we have in chapter 14, okay. we have cycle provision in developing nations. So why is that in there? And what's that about?
2: OK, can I just sort of slightly correct that? I think. Um, what I'm hoping I've done, maybe it's not come across as strongly as it should based on your comment, but um, I'm strongly basing everything that I've written so far in North American guidance, Dutch guidance, Danish guidance, and UK guidance. And I'm comparing and contrasting and evaluating all four of those. Um, And that's what's happened throughout the book. Where I have had a particular UK focus has been solely on issues to do with legal issues and um, planning issues um, particularly. So other than that, all of those engineering principles and practices are drawn from um, those four countries. So what Chapter 14 is doing is looking separately at developing nation issues, and I think the title for that is actually, it's been suggested to me, not quite right. We normally use the word low-resource country um, Mm -hmm. instead Mm -hmm. of... uh, Developing nation um, and um, I've been looking at um, design guidance which the uh, World Bank and others have put together for um, uh, particularly Africa and Southeast Asia and the issues in each of those two continents are rather different African cities tend to be car dominated they they tend to uh, they but Africa is far less well developed in Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia much more interesting in the sense that you have the bicycle, you have the rickshaw, and and so on and so forth. So there's a real mix of mm, traffic on Southeast Asian roads and safety issues as a consequence of that. So there's some very um, distinct problems and issues that each of those different continents has, but the fundamentally the principles you know remain the same and I uh, have a section on there which just um, reiterate that and also identify differences where there are differences.
0: Okay chapter 15 then that's before we get into the bibliography and the appendices so chapter 15 is innovation in provision for cycle traffic.
2: Yeah okay so this is the recognition that we are on a trajectory and I sort of make the point that sometimes innovation for one party, one city, one country um, is actually standard practice somewhere else. And I think um, hopefully the book will help level up every every place to an understanding of what the current state of the art is. Having said that, the, uh, I, I do point out you know, where there are differences, what, what some of those important differences are. I talk about stricter liability, for example, where mm. – in Northern Europe, you are strictly liable as the driver of a more dangerous machine to anybody who is um, more vulnerable than you are. And as a I,
0: cyclist, you're also a ditto for the pedestrian.
2: Absolutely, and I make that point, yeah. Yeah, yeah, That, that, that that's right. And then I talk about developments in planning and uh, innovations in infrastructure. So some of the more experimental um, developments that are going on in some parts of northern europe I, I put into this chapter things like for example turning on a red aspect which is now possible in some parts of france mm-hmm. issues and it's controversial for the uk but not not for much of europe issues of turning into a side road but then at uh, signals but then giving way to pedestrians who are crossing um So, um, you know, issues like that. And then some more fun issues as well, like heated cycle tracks, which mean that they never get frosted in the winter.
0: And then you mentioned driverless cars as well.
2: Yes, indeed. And we've had a very extensive stream of work in um, our university here on investigating connected and autonomous vehicles. And one of the trials that we, we have done has very importantly Looked at the interaction between pedestrians and autonomous vehicles, and also cyclists and autonomous vehicles. Broadly speaking, what what we found is that um, there is sort of no difference in a you know op- opinion or approach, as it were, of the human. However, and I need to be c- c- quite careful how I say this, but I mean, broadly speaking, my take on autonomous vehicles is that the tech industry, and also politicians, are utterly sold on them. Mm-hmm. I think the transport planning industry is only waking up to uh, the issues that they uh, create. And I think we need our profession, the transport planning profession, to do an awful lot more thinking and acting in this domain, because otherwise the politicians and the tech will begin to dominate. Just to give one small example there, I have heard it said by uh, a techie person Something along the lines that, you know, well, if if the pedestrian were to want to step out, what, what we need to do is give the, give them a device that tells them whether it's safe for them to do so. At which point I go, hang on. No, the public highway is a right of way for people is not a right of way for an autonomous vehicle. And just, just consider, I think this is a legal point, actually, and I, I haven't had this resolved, but an autonomous vehicle without anybody in, I'm not entirely sure, has a legal right to use the, the highway because mm-hmm. the right is enshrined for people. Mm-hmm. There's an, uh, what I'm trying to say is there's an awful lot more thinking um, got to take place before we can uh, begin to properly introduce autonomous vehicles on, on the roads of the UK. And were we to do so, I would hope that they are then, and this absolutely needs to be the case, coded in such a way that they will behave appropriately. And if they behave appropriately, they will then have a significant moderating effect on any remaining uh, human-driven uh, motor traffic, I would.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, this this podcast has certainly uh, covered that uh, many times. The, okay. The, the putting beacons on bicycles and, and 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 what have you, all sorts of uh, huge issues
2: coming up. Just, in no, the future not, there. Should should not be allowed. Should not it, it should not even enter the domain of being discussed. Beacons on bicycles, um, it's just just not not yeah.
0: Well, it's where the bike industry is going. It's very much uh, in cahoots with the car industry now in doing that very thing. So an yeah, enormous it, amount of uh, U.S. bike companies are uh, in deep discussions with this. So, yeah, I, I, it is an issue I, I find very, very um, disturbing,
2: to tell the truth. Very worrying. yeah. Uh, yes, yeah.
0: Right. So we then have, so that was chapter 15. So there are 15 chapters in, in this book. Then we have what I very rudely described before as gobbledygooks. So you have the three <laughs> appendices, which no, are the I, I... priority junction, capacity calculations, signal control, junction capacity calculations and roundabout capacity calculations. And, and you have now put me uh, dead to rights to say, no, these are incredibly critical for the reasons you gave before. So, so I do stand corrected there. Yeah,
2: No, that's fine.
0: And then, of course, that that wonderful index. So, John, we have been through your book in in some level of detail, but the book is so incredibly detailed. You have got to have your own copy. You can't just rely on an hour and a half uh, discussion uh, with you to get the the full gamut of what's in here. So
2: let's tell everybody where to get this book.
0: Where where can people order this book, John?
2: Uh Ah, yes. Now. If you Google designing for cycle traffic ICE publishing, you should uh, come up with the URL of the shop that it's being sold in. So, uh, you know, the, on, the online uh, ICE publishing shop.
0: So uh, that's icebookshop.com. I can see from yeah. that cover. Okay. And is that the recommended or is it going to be slightly cheaper somewhere else? Uh,
2: it's on offer at the moment. Um and i am not entirely sure i have to say of the publisher's intentions sort of going going forward from here um but i i i i don't know i don't know how the book industry works in that regard to be honest colton whether mm-hmm. I, I do we not still have the standard net book agreement or whatever it is i don't know
0: hmm.
2: well maybe not. i don't know
0: i mean it's probably different for academic books um mind you you still get lots of academic books on on amazon so anyway the, the the place we should be telling people to go to is icebookshop.com uh, and it's currently on offer uh, and where can people get hold of you on social media john so what's your twitter
2: handle that kind of stuff yeah at john parkin 28 is twitter and then I'm um, I'm a bit I am not very I'm not very active on Twitter, but uh, my main method of communication is still old-fashioned email. So I will read out my email address. I'm very happy to get uh, e- emails about uh, any subject relating to cycling, and it's very easy. It's john.parkin at Uwe. Dot Thank
0: you very much, John, for talking us through your book designing for cycle traffic it now will have absolute uh, pride of place on my bookshop to be pulled out uh when i'm talking to shock jocks and other people who 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 need to have uh fact brilliant and expert opinions uh actually thrown at them so this is this is a uh a a fantastic uh resource that's what it is it's a resource okay john thank you very much i know you've got a meeting to to rush away to as a busy academic uh thank you ever so much for for talking us through your book this morning uh,
2: can i just say thank you to you carlton for offering me this opportunity very much appreciated
0: thanks to john parkin there and thanks to you for listening to show 199 of the spokesman cycling roundtable podcast please consider leaving a review for the show on iTunes. And you're always welcome, of course, to leave comments on the show website, which is the-hyphen-whichever spokesmen.com. Amazingly, this podcast was first narrowcasted way back in 2006. And the next show will be a celebration of all those 200 count them, 200 episodes. Meanwhile, get out there and ride.